This is Hell, producer Alex. One more day in the year and two more favorites from 2021 suggested by listeners like you. Or you specifically if you're Rock Taster or David G who suggested that we replay our April conversation with writer Alexander Zaychik who wrote the New Republic article How Bill Gates Impeded Global Access to COVID Vaccines. Alexander has a book coming out in March called Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19 Vaccines. So look out for an interview with him in March. Uh, Back to work on Monday. Happy New Year, everyone. Bye. This is hell. Since Bill Gates left Microsoft and started his allegedly charitable Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and throughout the pandemic, Bill Gates has been displayed in the media as the caring, giving philanthropist who does so much for the developing world in his seemingly one man and one woman fight against global poverty. Turns out, in reality, his support for the poor is mere crumbs. His actions actually cause poverty. And when it comes to the virus, the, that Gates and Bill, Big Pharma's response is not working out too well for the poor either. Here to give us a far more honest reckoning of Bill Gates, free from Gates' vast influence, freelance journalist Alexander Zaychik wrote the New Republic article, How Bill Gates Impeded Global Access to COVID Vaccines. Welcome to This Is Hell, Alexander. Good to be here, Chuck. How you doing? Good. Alexander is the author of the 2016 book, The Gilded Rage, A Wild Ride Through Trump's America, and 2010's Common Nonsense. Alexander's upcoming book, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine, from Aspirin to COVID-19, will be published by CounterPoint in 2022. You start by writing how the World Health Organization's February 2020 R&D blueprint in preparation for a world upended by the virus, then known as 2019 NCOV. You describe how the resulting document summarized the state of coronavirus research and proposed ways to accelerate the development of diagnostics, treatments, and vaccines. The underlying premise was that the world would unite against the virus. The global research community would maintain broad and open channels of communication since collaboration and information sharing minimize duplication and accelerate discovery. The group also drew up plans for global comparative trials overseen by the World Health Organization to assess the merits of treatments and vaccines. So at the outset, you know, the cliche was we're all in this together. It was being repeated over and over again. Some, despite us all clearly not being in this together, some are still using that phrase. Were we ever all in this together? Or was that just a fantasy of the World Health Organization? Well, the industry, I think, never had any intention of willingly uh, changing the rules that have made it one of the most powerful industries uh, in world history. Uh, I think that's safe to say. Um, Recent history shows us that their allied governments probably were not too keen on changing the rules either. They're sort of um, you know, a tandem in, on this issue of intellectual property rights and pharmaceuticals. Um, but there was a space for sort of pushing them into line with uh, the consensus that was developing among um, public health experts and the research community that the rules should be suspended given the enormity of the crisis and the scale of uh, work that had to be done rather quickly to to get a handle on it. So there was you know, a moment where it looked possible, sort of, um, you know, a a space where that could have been seized and and, and that future could have been built. Um, Unfortunately, Gates 
moved very quickly to establish uh, an initiative, um, a whole architecture called the ACT Accelerator, which basically pushed the conversation back onto a more familiar IPR paradigm of um, monopoly rights for uh, the pharmaceutical companies that were benefiting from these huge public subsidies. Um, and, and here we are. Yeah, and you mentioned how the one one issue not mentioned in the World Health Organization uh, paper was intellectual property. If the worst came to pass, the experts and researchers assumed cooperation would define the global response with the WHO playing a central role. That pharmaceutical companies and their allied governments would allow intellectual property concerns to slow things down from research and development to manufacturing scale-up does not seem to have occurred to them. They were wrong, but they weren't alone. To you, what explains this level of betrayal by pharmaceuticals and their allied governments and apparently a complete lack of outrage over both private interests and the state prioritizing money over humanity. The lack of outrage in the part of who? The the public in general, the media. We don't see any talk about this. There's no discussion of intellectual property rights when it comes to the barriers that, that existed to do the research for the virus. Yeah. I mean, in the context of the pandemic, I think uh, it was difficult to sort of get into the weeds. Everyone was terrified. Everyone was, you know, focused on the day to day, which is is understandable. Um, Nobody really knew what the hell was going on. And uh, everyone was focused on just getting some good news about vaccine research. And uh, Gates was able to present his bid for organizing that research and development and production in a way that sounded good. Um, you know, he promised equity. He said that, you know, we're going to round up down the edges of a of a system that's not always perfect. And I'm going to employ my enormous resources for um, benevolence and, um, you know, a equitable global solution. And who's, who's going to argue with that um, at that time? But, you know, the problem with Gates from the beginning has been um, there's there's been a hesitancy or unwillingness uh, in the media to sort of do the step back um, and and look at the philanthropic model that he represents in uh, the larger sort of system context that you alluded to earlier when you said we had a neo-colonial uh, global pharmaceutical system, which we absolutely do, in which he effectively runs interference for. I think is is the is the conclusion that's very hard to um, avoid when you when you really look at it. But if the media was looking for good news, how much success was the World Health Organization before Gates interfered? How much success were they having through working together? Is there any evidence that had they continued cooperating, we would have had an effective vaccine sooner and have it distributed more widely than in the current situation? Why uh, not, I mean, and why not go after that good news story of this cooperative working together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. The the development side is a counterfactual, um, who knows, but probably, um, you know, the the research, as as we know, with the mRNA vaccines had already pretty much been done in the public sector. uh, And those were come up with pretty quickly. Uh, One thing that would have certainly helped would have been the global comparative trials. Um, We might have figured out more about the problems with the AstraZeneca vaccine, for example. but instead, we let the companies do their privatized trials where they basically contracted with um, these non-transparent um, companies that, that, that uh, for one, slowed things down by not having a um, representative enough um, base of participants. That was one problem. Um, so if you isolate 
the things they wanted to do and look at how it actually panned out, you can see, oh, wow, this actually could have been done better. Absolutely. So there's not really a, a debate on that. Um, and in terms of manufacture, I don't think there's any question. I mean, we're, it has been such a disaster in terms of the supply side that that is just not debatable. I don't think anyone, even Gates, well, he is actually making that argument still, but it, it's it's so untenable that, um, you know, I don't think anyone at this point takes it seriously. While they were working together, this uh, World Health Organization COVID-19 Technology Access Pool, or CTEP, while that was going on, while they were working together, meanwhile, every U.S. TV network nightly news program had a segment called The Race for the Cure, and we're packaging it as a competition between nations to see who would find a cure first. During that time, I do not remember stories about cooperation, only this framing of competition. Was competition being promoted while cooperation was taking place? And if so, in your opinion, why does the media frame it as a race when the medical community at that time was not? Well, on the media point, I I don't think you can avoid reckoning with the fact that pharma is, you know, one of the biggest ad buyers, uh, if you're talking about television, um, you know, that there is. And then you've also got the fact that the race for the vaccine, quote unquote, kind of fed into the whole Russia narrative, uh, Russia, China. It was, you know, it fit into the sort of usual frames. Um, so there were lots of sort of incentives for TV to do what what TV does and, and for the mainstream media to, to do what it does and avoid the sort of um, more troubling questions that uh, challenge the status quo in all sorts of ways. But, yeah, there was absolutely no coverage of CTAP to speak of. Um, the pool was ready and waiting. Uh, you know, you had dozens of countries behind it. You had the director general at WHO behind it. You had, you know, Bill Gates is not the only public health expert in the world. Um, you know, he just happens to be the richest and the most powerful self-appointed one. But there were plenty of other experts, you know, just aghast that this was being allowed to lie fallow and get absolutely zero um, support from drug company governments or industry. When you were mentioning that uh, competition with Russia and China, you know, we've had a lot of foreign policy critics on our show who have said that the problem with U.S. foreign policy is that it's still stuck on a Cold War footing. And it sounds like from what you're saying that the media is very much stuck on a Cold War framing of all of the news issues that they cover. You think that's kind of the case? I do. And there's, there's actually a historical footnote here that, that I think is worth mentioning in terms of uh, the Cold War and that frame. When Jonas Salk invented polio, uh, when he discovered the polio vaccine in 1955, Dwight Eisenhower delivered a speech the next day in which he promised to make all of the technology available with assistance to every country on Earth, including the Soviet Union. This is 1955. This is even before the Khrushchev speech. I mean, this is like the darkest, <laughs> one of the darkest periods of the Cold War. And the United States understood the importance of both as a soft power ploy, but also just in terms of its role in the world and the idea of medicine as a and vaccines as a global public good, understood a responsibility to share it. And there was never a question of allowing the companies that were contracted to make the stuff controlling it. And they made money. They made a profit. Um, the five companies, including some of them that are still around today and that we know. Um, but, you know, they were, they were understood to be the junior partner in this relationship. And what we have now is a situation where basically they're running the show and the government is just absolutely 
devoid of any self-respect in terms of using its own technology and patents. I mean, it's just unbelievable that, that our government is this pathetic. What, what changed? I mean, look, here, we, we just had a presidency that got into power because it's about make America great again. And this nostalgic look back to the 50s as some great period in time. It was a great period in time when it came to distributing vaccines to the world when it came to uh, Salk's polio vaccine. So what the hell happened to the United States that all of a sudden now that's not a priority? We no longer feel that way, even when we're being nostalgic about that era as some great time for America. Yeah, I mean, the, the two sort of stories there that you have to tell are the rise of pharma as a trillion dollar powerhouse industry with a lock on the government. Uh, it run, Famously, it runs the richest lobbying shop in D.C. Um, and Geneva. And that is a big part of it. And concurrently, you have its very effective leadership, quote unquote, in uh, globalizing the model that it established in the U.S. through the World Trade Organization. And that is uh, a very recent story. I think a lot of people, one of the things about this sort of shallow historical memory moment that we're in is we forget how new so much of this shit is. I mean, before the WTO, there was zero expectation or obligation on the part of any country on earth to respect any other country's um, drug patents for the most part. And they, and they didn't. Um, and that was forced upon the global South basically uh, by a very small number of um, executives, especially with Pfizer. They sort of led the charge. We're talking about like a dozen people um, in partnership with, with uh, the U.S. government that basically drove home the, um, the intellectual property regime that we're dealing with right now. And, um, you know, there, that was a fight that lasted a long, long time. Um, the, there was a rearguard battle that led by uh, India, Brazil, and uh, a lot of other large countries in the global south um, that finally they lost because, you know, the U.S. was at the peak of its post-Cold War power. And they basically said, look, if you want access to our markets, if you want development funds, you're going to sign on this dotted line. And they eventually did. And, you know, when you talk to the negotiators from these countries about those days, they inevitably pause and choke up <laughs> in either like grief or rage because they knew exactly what they were signing in 1994, uh, which went into effect the next year. And that was a death warrant for millions of people. And then, of course, with the global AIDS crisis, especially in Africa, five years later, that was borne out and anyone could have seen that coming, and everyone did see it coming, in fact. Um, and that was a huge, huge global uh, debate at the time. Remember Battle in Seattle in uh, 1999, the WTO? That's what this was about. We were having the same conversation in the context of a different pandemic. And one of the things about 9-11 that was so tragic was it completely derailed all of that. And now we're having to sort of relearn this history and these lessons and go back to sort of the starting line. But, you know, there were people fighting in the streets and tear gas over this issue uh, not all that long ago because it's it's completely obscene. It's completely immoral. It's and it's it's dictated from above. It's um, it's not natural. There's nothing that says. Uh, you know, scientific knowledge should be or is a natural property, right? I mean, if anything, all the evidence points in the other direction. Um, you know, every argument you can think of that 
basically this is a system failure and it has not worked uh, in terms of access, in terms of incentivizing the needed R&D on uh, actual public health threats. But here we are thinking this is just like the state of things and without this system, we're never going to have a new medicine again and we're going to go back to the dark ages. And, uh, you know, it's absolutely absurd. And the the industry's ability to, uh, you know, continue this line and, 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 and sort of sell it is a testimony to the amount of money they have and their sort of messaging think tank network. It's been very effective. Uh, and also just a... Um, the disappearance of memory, I think, to, to a certain extent. And, and we need to go back and review the episodes that led to this. That gave me goosebumps because it reminded me of us covering the battle for Seattle back in 1999 and how the people we had on the show were saying this is exactly what was going to happen. This is a system of rising global inequality, and this is a system that is a new form of colonialism. Does intellectual property rights, does that change science into a weapon of colonialism? Uh, effectively, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, to avoid precisely that conclusion because these the companies are mostly based in a handful of uh, Western countries, which are the richest countries in the world, which became that way through this enormous historical centuries-long wealth transfer. Um, which now takes different forms. And one of them is uh, intellectual property around um, different forms of knowledge monopolies, of which drugs is, is the most consequential. You write that by late May of last year in the launch of the WT, uh, WHO COVID-19 technology access pool, however, the optimism and sense of possibility that defined the early days were long gone. Advocates for pooling and open science who seemed ascendant and even unstoppable that winter confronted the possibility they'd been outmatched and outmaneuvered by the most powerful man in global public health. And that person is Bill Gates. Gates' involvement in the quest to find a vaccine has been glorified by some with uh, an idea that he would actually find the cure himself, while others have gone so far as to believe Gates himself is behind the pandemic, actually causing the outbreak in some scheme to get rich. To you, what explains these kind of cartoonish caricatures taking hold in the popular discussion and debate, but not a discussion of intellectual property? Uh, well, I mean, the, the picture we have of Gates is very much a picture of his own creation. I mean, like the industry that, that he's aligned with, he spends an awful lot of time and money on image management. And in some sense, his whole second career in public health was this epic reputation laundering um, event. I mean, don't forget, before he shifted over in 2000, after stepping down from CEO of uh, Microsoft, he was loathed, widely loathed as a ruthless monopolist, you know, being sued on two continents. So, you know, he has been very careful about making sure that uh, his um, obituary reads something else. And you know, he spends a lot of money on it. I, I don't even really cover public health, but I can't tell you how many junkets I've had forwarded to me uh, for some Gates initiative. And a lot of people go on these junkets and a lot of journalists sort of, you know, are fatayed by him and buy into this benevolent philanthropy model that, um, you know, we've always kind of been susceptible to in this country, especially in elite media. 
Um, so, you know, it's by design, um, this picture that we have that's, that's false. And, and, you know, going after intellectual property rights and, and really digging into it means going up against, you know, the most powerful um, industries in the economy. And it's, uh, it's not, you know, sexy uh, or fun. And it seems like a lot more difficult than, um, you know, some other <laughs> things you can write about. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you, but it, it's definitely something that we cannot avoid much longer. And especially in an age of pandemics, I mean, it's it's essential to the future of the species because this is not the last pandemic. It may not even be the last pandemic of the decade. And we have got to get past this if we are going to really be able to deal with this new world um, that we're entering. So why is Gates so motivated to protect intellectual property rights? I understand that from your uh, in your writing, how he believes that intellectual property rights actually leads to innovation. So does uh, IP lead to innovation? Uh, That has been the industry line for I mean, they really started pumping that in the 70s. and they would have us believe that it's the only possible incentive to um, come up with new drugs. There are any number of models that can incentivize new drugs. And we know this because industry even uses them. They have prize money competition. They have, um, you know, other countries have different systems. We have a public sector that is extremely innovative uh, in which intellectual property rights are secondary because most of the breakthroughs are coming in the basic research level. So yes, I mean, there's all sorts of things we can do. And you can even go back before patent systems existed. I mean, again, this is relatively new. Most of Europe did not have a patent system until late in the 19th century. And they didn't have drug patents until the 1970s. Like, never mind the WTO. Spain and um, you know the Netherlands, they did not have drug patents until late into the 20th century. They thought they were crazy, uh, and you know their scientists were still coming up with some pretty good uh, material. And somehow, you know, Louis Pasteur invented you know modern uh, immunology. So yeah, I think we can have innovation without uh, knowledge monopolies. I don't think that's a question. You write about Gates' dedication to monopoly medicine surviving the pandemic, even before he and his foundation's officers began to say so publicly. Is it possible to break up monopoly medicine so we do not have this slow response after the next inevitable outbreak or a virus that becomes pandemic? Can antitrust laws here in the United States break up monopoly medicine or is monopoly medicine protected now by the World Trade Organization? Yeah, I mean, those are two uh, two different levels you'd, you'd have to deal with. Um, in the U.S. context, <clears throat> absolutely, uh, they can be broken up. They're, these are politically um, constructed things, and they can be deconstructed. We have um, public interest triggers written into patent law. Um, there's, you know, three or four different laws between patent code uh, and between, you know, legislation that that funds basic research through the NIH that allow the U.S. to come in and basically take IP in in the public interest. It's just not used. Um, By Dole, which was the sort of uh, landmark law in, in 1980 that formed a conveyor belt of government science into the into the private sector, has very clear public interest march in language, not been used once. 
the glass is pristine on that. Um, so yeah, it's a question of political will and, uh, in the WTO, same thing. Um, you know, trips is a council within the WTO and, uh, it doesn't have to be. And within that council right now, you have a very serious challenge to all of the, um, the IP laws that it usually enforces. They're not even asking to get rid of it forever. What, what the challenge is to the, um, trips regime taking place now is just for the duration of the pandemic and the companies and, uh, allied governments, including our own so far are refusing even that. There, you know, because of the example it might set. And I think that's important to keep in mind is, is one of the reasons why Gates and industry uh, is so against lifting um, IP rights for a short period um, or having a moratorium is because of the example it sets. And once people realize, wait a second, if we can do this now, why why can't we do this all the time? And then it just starts to all, lead to all sorts of uncomfortable questions and an unraveling potentially. And and they're terrified of that above all else. So what happens to Bill Gates' wealth if intellectual property rights no longer exist? Is does he have a conflict of interest here, where that is what his wealth is based upon? He's not going to end up in a homeless shelter, no matter what. Um, I don't think this is a question of his personal wealth at all. Um, to go back to your question about what's motivating him on this, I do think it's in his sort of DNA. I think it's one of his, you know, earliest. Um, it's kind of in the sort of Bill Gates movie that may be made one day. Like the rosebud in that movie will be some sort of like homespun wisdom that his dad told him about the free market and the importance of, you know, something like that. Like since he was a little kid, a little prep school kid, he's been raging against the open source anarchists when he when he was tinkering with with his first software program. He hated the hippies, hated them. He was publishing these letters against the hobbyists. I mean, that's like who he is from day one. Um, and what's really going on there psychologically, who knows? But I do not doubt that commitment is sincere. And for him to come around to accepting that it's a disaster and that it's maybe attention that he's devoted his life to solving these problems while also reinforcing the system that creates these problems, I don't think he's ready to do that because his head might explode. Um, and, you know, beyond that, like, I don't really care what's going on inside Bill Gates' head because this is a political problem that needs to be solved politically, and that is a question of mobilizing a whole lot of people into a whole lot of um, you know grassroots energy, like we saw in the late '90s around the African AIDS crisis, which was very effective and moved the chains on this conversation farther than it's ever been moved. Um, we need to get back to that mentality and have a very clear understanding as we do that the role of philanthropy and Bill Gates in particular. It's just stunning that somebody who has like daddy issues is causing uh, people to die right now and causing inequality all over the world. How does some one person get that kind of power? How does Bill Gates get the power to change the entire way that the vaccine is going to be created and distributed uh, to the entire world? How does he how does he have that say so over everything? Well, I mean, the source of his power is, of course, extremely ruthless anti-competitive practices um, in the 80s and 90s and also the adoption of the 
WTO regime, which enforced, um, you know, Microsoft's monopoly around the world. So that's obviously where it comes from. That's the basis of his billions. And then once he had the billions, he started to spread it around. Um, and he bought a lot of goodwill, he bought a lot of media time. Um, and he also did some things that in concrete terms are undeniably good. I mean, his malaria work, for example, in absolute terms is a good contribution to the world. But if you stop there, um, you know, that's, that's where the problem begins. And he has effectively deployed his wealth to make sure that people stop there. And he's effectively obfuscated the larger system role that he plays by getting everyone to focus on, you know, X number of vaccines being deployed, um, you know, X number of this going to that country, this number of discounts, you know, all of these sort of edge softening initiatives that he's done, which if you just stop with them, you can say, okay, the world is slightly better because of these things. But if you want to get past the mountain of this system failure, you're going to have to be a little bit more rigorous in how you look at what he does and why he does it. So what would you say to somebody who suggests that the fact that the vaccine is out relatively quickly, the fact that so many people have become vaccinated uh, is all because Bill Gates was right about intellectual property rights? Well, so many people have not been vaccinated. Most of the world has not been vaccinated and will not be vaccinated for another three years, four years, potentially. So it's been a complete failure. His idea that you could manage production and distribution through this buyer's club that leaves, leaves the companies with the power and the IP has been a complete 100 uh, percent, you know, undebatable failure. Um, and, and the actual development of the vaccines had nothing to do really with the private sector that he's left in control. I mean, there's a piece in The Guardian uh, just today about the AstraZeneca vaccinated 97% public funds behind that research. The, the Pfizer and Moderna uh, vaccines are really NIH vaccines. It drives me crazy when people say, oh, I got the Moderna shot. No, you got the NIAID shot. <laughs> uh, you know, that's where they come from. That's who invented these things. They're, they're public sector uh, products. So what happened with the situation with the Jenner Institute and Oxford University? They made a vaccine and then they said they were going to release that at a very low cost to low and middle income countries. Why why didn't that happen? Yeah, Adrian Hill, the guy who directs the um, the, the Jenner Institute, was trying to be faithful to the history of of Oxford uh, research, which is where they developed penicillin, you may remember, during World War II, uh, which was produced and manufactured um, on a non-patent basis during the war. It was later patented after the war. But during the war, it was uh, manufactured on a contract basis by a bunch of companies who, again, made a ton of profit. That's actually where Pfizer comes from. They made their first real bones manufacturing penicillin during the war for the government. Um, but, but yeah, that was Oxford, and they just kind of gave it to the world. And he thought... Hill thought, why don't we do the same thing with COVID? It makes as much sense. We're in a World War II style global emergency. Um, and the Gates Foundation basically said, no, 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 no. That's not how we do this. We're giving you money. And we think you should partner with one of the, the big guys. And as it happens, the, the people that they partnered with, AstraZeneca, is one of the worst <laughs> I mean, that's a whole separate show, but like they're one of the worst offenders when it comes to patent extensions and all sorts of betrayals of the patent bargain that are supposed to be how it works. Um, it's just an awful company. 
but um, where was I? Yeah, so he intervened, and you know the smoking gun hasn't um, surfaced yet. It's probably out there somewhere. I'd love to see it if anyone wants to get in touch with me. Um, but yeah, it's 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 well known and acknowledged that Gates or his people, his officers, maybe uh, Richard Wilder, his his general counsel at CEPI, who's been very active on this front, um, doing a lot of those private meetings, um, basically put the kibosh on it. And you point out that uh, there's been this kind of confrontation over the WTO and trade-related aspects of Intellectual Property Rights Council, where it seems to be that the, you know, the former imperial powers are on one side and the former colonies are on the other side. 134 countries very upset about the fact that intellectual property rights are still being protected during the pandemic. How long will the global south tolerate global north control over intellectual property rights and thus having unequal access to things like vaccinations during pandemics? And is there anything they can do about it if they fail at the WTO? Well, one of the conversations that's coming out of this right now uh, in the South is about ramping up local, regional um, production capacity. And it's not just in the South, it's happening all over the world. Um, People realizing, well, maybe over the last 30 years, we shouldn't have completely destroyed our public sectors um, with vaccines and and pharmaceuticals generally, which was basically kind of a reflection of general neoliberal trends. Um, But yeah, there is a conversation in the South about being more self-sufficient and being in a position to um, produce things for themselves. Now with vaccines, it's a little tricky because often it's not as simple as um, reverse engineering the the formula, which is you know something you can do with with more basic um, drugs and medicines. But with vaccines, you often need the active tech transfer assistance of the so-called originator countries. And that is something that has not been written into the contracts that have come out of um, COVAX or these um, these uh, state industry contracts that you saw, for example, in Operation Warp Speed. And there were people screaming for those contracts to include mandatory tech transfer at the time. Um, didn't happen. There were people saying, okay, that didn't happen. Let's have voluntary tech transfer through CTAP. Second best option. Didn't happen. And now you're having the the reality of this disaster um, that's unavoidable. So Gates is now sort of tiptoeing into the tech transfer issue. He just had a meeting with with industry at a virtual meeting organized by the Chatham House in London on this issue. And uh, it was basically him uh, and, you know, his organizations and industry. Tedros, the director general of the WHO, didn't even show up. You know, at one point uh, you point out that on May 29th, 2020, Donald Trump announced U.S. withdrawal from the World Health Organization. This was in response, he said, to China's total control of the agency. The drug industry, meanwhile, was displeased with the World Health Organization for entirely different reasons. The same day, the World Health Organization director general had unveiled the CTAP with a solidarity call to action for governments and companies to share all intellectual property related to COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. So who had more control over the World Health Organization when Trump left uh, the... Oh, did I lose him again? Yeah, we lost him. Jeez. Uh, it actually might be on us. Really? Uh, yeah, give me one sec. Let's try it. Alexander, are you there? I'm here. Oh, sweet. So who had more control over the World Health Organization when Trump left the organization because he believed it was controlled by China? Was it China or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? 
Oh, I don't think there's any question that the Gates Foundation is the biggest, you know, single influence at, at the World Health Organization. Um, he's the biggest funder, and he, you know, has the most uh, people on the payroll. Quite frankly, um, sort of moving in and out uh, into the agencies and moving around between his organizations and other UN agencies. I mean, everyone kind of goes through Gates at, at one point in their career, um, and. You know, it's one thing you, you get a sense of when you talk to medicines access advocates who've been observing the the um, the organization for a long time is just the extent of their reach um, that you know they have by virtue of, of of their resources. How much of the concept of open source? Because it seems like this is the way that Bill Gates views it. He sees it as kind of a a threat to capitalism. How much does the global economy depend upon intellectual property rights and keeping any ideas of open source, any any kind of those ideas in check? Uh, I mean, there's sectors of the economy who are, you know, dependent on it for the size of, of you know, their bottom line. And, and pharmaceuticals is by far and away number one. They have the, the thickest profit margin of any industry on earth. Um, and, and clearly that is a result of they're all monopoly profits. Um, they could still be profitable without monopolies and they used to be profitable, um, when they were just making medicine, you know, you can make things and, and sell them at a profit without, um, making billions and billions of dollars, which by the way, is not being plowed back into R and D for the most part, but is going into marketing and, and things like stock buybacks increasingly. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a source of of wealth and power for for some industries. Entertainment, software, and, and pharmaceuticals are still sort of in the lead uh, in bio, um, and they're the ones who wrote these rules. Again, not all that long ago, a quarter century ago, um, and uh, you know, reckoning with that fact is kind of the starting line for for this conversation. And you write of Gates' plan, the biggest and most consequential aim, as you were just pointing out, COVAX, proposed to subsidize vaccine deals with poor countries through donations by and sales to richer ones. The goal was always limited. It aimed to provide vaccines for up to 20 percent of the population in low to middle income uh, countries. So why does this this process that Gates seems to have of just paying lip service to the low and middle income countries, why does that lip service work? Well, I mean, if you, if you assume that the world can't possibly be any better than it is, and the system we have is the best of all possible worlds, then again, in absolute terms, any contribution uh, that's above zero uh, is to be lauded and celebrated. Um, you know, if if you live in a country that's going to have zero vaccines, and a COVAX plane shows up with 10 million vaccines, even though it's going to, you know, take care of 0.01% of your population, uh, I guess that's a good thing, especially if you're, you know, a frontline nurse or in the royal family. But, you know, if you step back and say, okay, what would have happened if we had taken scale up seriously a year ago and done everything possible to make sure every factory that could be making vaccines was making them, instead of 40 million, it might be a much, much higher number. So taking the contribution in absolute terms versus looking at uh, larger system effects is really the, the choice here. And it's one that the media has just failed on again and again and again. 
we were talking about colonialism when it comes to intellectual property rights. You also point out that during the uh, HIV era in, in Africa, you write that since they could not be, uh, the pharmaceuticals argued about people in South Africa, since they could not be relied on to take their med- medicines on a schedule, giving Africans access to the drugs would allow for the emergence of drug-resistant HIV variants, according to industry and its government and media allies. Our defenses of patents rooted not only in colonialism, but in stereotypes of the political South. Our patents and their thinking grounded in not only racism, colonialism, but white supremacy and privilege. That argument certainly was. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, the, the systems of power that they represent, yes. Um, but, you know, in terms, I don't think there's anything inherently racist about um, a patent. It's, they're just not um, a good idea when it comes to uh, to medicines from from a equity justice or or R&D perspective. Um, but that that argument that was used um, at that time, it's shocking in retrospect um, to think how widespread that was. After the article came out, someone sent me a link to a, a West Wing episode, um, a show that I never watched, but apparently is, is quite horrible and is responsible for a lot of the bad things in the world. <laughs> um, and uh, they repeat that argument with this somber tone, like it was a conversation stopper, you know, like it was just settled the matter, um, which was surprising to me. But when you go back and look at that time, you have not just industry and, and high level government officials making that case, but also people in the media. And I mentioned Andrew Sullivan, who was making that case repeatedly uh, in his blog in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it turned out that he was accepting funding under the table from pharma the whole time. And then when he got caught, he basically said, I have nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing wrong with this. Um, And the fact that New York, I know this is a little bit of a a diversion here, but the fact that New York Magazine hired him after that happened and it was well known is just, you know, tells you everything you need to know. Um, And the fact that people still take that guy seriously is just, uh, I don't even know what to say. Yeah, (laughs) neither do I. So uh, I think I was having that conversation with Alex Coburn like 20 years ago. uh, You point out the artificial shortage of vaccines is primarily caused by the inappropriate use of intellectual property rights. So I just want to make sure that people understand this. How is there an artificial shortage of vaccines right now? And is that shortage intentional? I don't think anyone would want there to be less vaccines, although you could make an argument that less vaccines results in a higher price and controlling the market involves um, involves a, a shortage aspect. Yes. Um, so from the point of view of industry, um, it, there's a there's a relationship between supply and price. Uh, you can't you know, it's just basic capitalism. They want to talk about capitalism. Let's talk about capitalism. There you go. Um, and, you know, would supply be better? Uh, w- would the supply crisis be uh, less serious if we had taken production more seriously at the beginning and not let IP slow it down? Absolutely. There were lots of people saying, hey, over here, like in places like Bangladesh. Um, this goes back to your racism question. You, you know what, Chuck? Uh, I think that actually deserves more attention. Places like Bangladesh. Uh, said, we can make this stuff. We, we can do one of these vaccines that are ready to come online. And Gates and uh, a lot of governments were like, eh, well, you know, maybe you can't do it up to snuff. This is really complicated stuff. Um, so there, w- there was a certain amount of um, condescension that was sort of dripping with, I think, um, 
you know, racism or, or northern northern superiority there that, that came into play, absolutely, and is still coming into play. They're still using this very condescending language about how complicated these vaccines are to make and how everything has to be up to Western standards and up to snuff. But, you know, the, the generics industry in the South um, actually makes those same product lines make a lot of the name brand drugs that we buy. So that argument has always been a little bit disingenuous. They use the same factories. They just put it in different bottles and it's good enough for them to sell at the monopoly prices. But then when it challenges their interests, they say, oh, wait, we, you don't want anything from these factories. So that's something that people should keep in mind. But yeah, absolutely. The supply crisis would not be as bad as it is had IP not been allowed to slow down ramp and scale up a year ago. I mean, we lost a crucial year because of this. So whatever happens down the line, we lost the crucial year. And that is something that we're going to have to um, come to terms with. One last question for you. We've been speaking with freelance journalist Alexander Zajic, who wrote the New Republic article, How Bill Gates Impeded Global Access to COVID Vaccines. Alexander's upcoming book, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine, from aspirin to COVID-19 will be published next year in 2022. One last question for you, Alexander, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. (laughs) Did, Did your writing or research have any impact on your decision to get the vaccine or not? No. Why not? No. Because I'm, I'm getting I'm getting my second Pfizer dose today, and I'm freaking out because you know Pfizer, as you're pointing out, they led the WTO charge for intellectual property rights. Yeah, that's. <laughs> and yeah. I'm sitting there waiting for a Pfizer shot. It's 